You are listening to a Live City Church podcast, and we hope you'll experience Jesus today. We are excited to have you join our extended online church family. If you would like further information or wish to access more content, please connect with us on our Live City Church Facebook page or visit us at livecitychurch.com. Good morning, everyone. Absolutely delightful to be with you and to worship with you. Uh, Oh, thank you for that. Do you know that there's a reward for that? Just a glass of water in the name of a disciple. Just imagine if you brought me orange juice in the name of Jesus. Oh, no, no, I'm I'm joking. Um, I'm just so honoured to be here, and thank you for having the trust of your, your pastor who's prepared to let me loose without his company here. <laughs> um, I have a good friend with me by the name of James Sloan. Many of you have met him already. Uh, you'll get used to his accent. He's from Belfast in Northern Ireland. He was an outstanding professional football, soccer player, and he's a great golfer. And on top of that, in spite of his strange accent, he is a good friend. (laughs) Well, I'm going to share something with you, and I've put some notes on your seats. One is a little news bulletin, which I submit to you for your prayers. Please pray for our ministry, especially the upcoming ministry. I'm leaving on Wednesday to go overseas to the UK and to Germany and maybe to Ukraine as well because a lot of adverse things have been happening in the southern part of Ukraine. They've had a war in eastern Ukraine for the last five years. A crazy Russian rebel army shot the Malaysian airline plane out of the sky, did ridiculous things, impoverished that part of the country. And um, I support 22 orphanages in that nation and another 30 in Latvia, just something that's grown over the last 27 years. And you people pray for that. Now, in that newsletter is um, some prayer points, which I'd ask you to lift up to the Lord. Um, I'm probably going to have to visit Odessa to see what privations they've got. I mean, the recent encounter of the Ukrainian warships that was so stupid, going into Russian waters... And tempting the Russians. The Russians were very restrained. They could have blown them out of the water. They didn't. They took them captive, gave them a wrap over the knuckles. But what's happened is commerce has almost come to a standstill in that region. Supplements, medicines uh, that we need for the children can't be obtained there anymore. It's about minus 20 degrees. And kids with low immune systems would battle. So I'm asking for your prayers. We've been trying to find commodities in Poland and Germany close by but that pushes the prices up. And I keep saying to God, God, this hasn't caught you by surprise. You knew the needs were going to increase. Please, would you meet those needs? And thank God, so far, we haven't lost a child in this winter. We haven't lost a child in the winters for the last 24 years. And I'm just so grateful to God for that. I didn't think I'd be supporting these orphans for so long. I started with the thought of helping them for two years, 27 years ago. And uh, 
I've had the privilege of watching these kids grow up, get jobs, because we put them through work-related courses, the trades they want to be involved in, and they get married. They have children of their own. They break the cycle of being an orphan. And for me, that's payday. That's payday. And um, it's just been beautiful to see the fruit of these labors. Every now and again, I'll get an email or a communication on Facebook from one of these big guys now who's a naughty little runt in one of the orphanages. Um, he's working in Dublin or in Cork in Ireland or um, in, in London. He's married, he's got three children. He sends me photographs of his family. He said, do you remember me? I was that naughty little boy at the back of that orphanage on the Russian border groping the girls when you were talking and your team was putting on a concert and you threatened to come down and knock my lights out. Well, he's about 15 centimetres taller than me now, and I'm glad I didn't go down and knock his lights out. <clears throat> but we have a lot of fun these days. And um, please pray for that ministry. That's the reason I gave you that news bulletin. <clears throat> and secondly, keep the notes handy, because before I get to the end of my little message, I'm going to ask you to refer to those. I'm going to share something with you that I've had to deal with in my own personal life. And... You've got the point up on the screen already. The point of no return, where <clears throat> um, we all have to face this sometime. It can be a crisis in our lives. Hopefully it's not. Where we are facing an invitation from the Lord. And he's asking us to give our lives to him on a daily basis in service. Now, for me, I had to face this decision in a crisis. It was after our son was born in Zimbabwe. It was Rhodesia then. And I nearly lost my wife. She spent a month in hospital. And uh, it was touch and go. And I felt the Lord say to me, if your wife comes home to me at this stage, are you prepared to go on with me? Nevertheless, I had to wrestle with that. Was God saying to me, I'm going to take her home and I'm preparing you for it? He didn't take her home. We've just celebrated our 53rd wedding anniversary. <laughs> Along with my birthday, that was last week as well. I won't tell you how old I am because I got married when I was 10. <laughs> anyway, <clears throat> I wasn't. I was um, 22 when I got married. <clears throat> However, uh, I made that decision. I said, Lord, you know, without you... I'm lost. Without you, I can do nothing. And I have no thoughts and plans without you. So no matter what happens, I will still go on serving you. That was what he wanted from me. Now, I've had to remind myself about this decision, sometimes on a weekly basis. Because we do get very carnal at times. And the, the man who did communion for us this morning was very honest in the way he was feeling, and he's sitting here in front of me. I hope he's not embarrassed. <clears throat> that was a lovely message. Thank you, mate. Um, so we're looking at <clears throat> a verse of Scripture here, John 12, verses 20 to 26. And it's headed normally in a modern version of the Bible, the fruitful grain of wheat. Verse 20, now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast, they then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now, these Greeks obviously wanted to see Jesus do something sensational. Philip had Greek extract. 
So they made a beeline for him and said, we want to meet Jesus. Well, Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. But Jesus was not going to put on a show for them. He answered them saying, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. You're going to see him glorified, but not in the way that you think. We knew what he was going to do. Looking back, he was going to the cross, he was going to die and then be resurrected. This is a key verse. Verse 24, most assuredly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat, a seed, falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. And then he said, he who loves his life will lose it. In other words, who holds on to his life selfishly. Now, it doesn't mean we've got to hate ourselves. Because then how are we going to love our neighbors as ourselves? It means our love for Jesus, our love for others, comes before self-preservation. But he who puts his life last in this world will keep it for life eternal. I love this verse. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall my servant also be. If anyone serves me, him will my father honor. Now, there was no doubt about it. Jesus was speaking about himself when he said these words. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies... It produces much grain. <clears throat> if you've ever planted a seed, I remember we, we did all sorts of strange things at school in South Africa. One of the favorites was taking a bean seed and putting it between two damp wads of cotton wool and watching the process of germination of that seed in the, and every hour I was opening, a, opening up the cotton wool, damp cotton wool to have a look at the progress and that was damaging to the seed. But it gave you an understanding of what happens to a seed when it's planted in the ground. It has all the life-giving uh, potential within that seed. And it can remain one seed alone, eventually dry up and shrivel away, never producing fruit. Or it can be sown into the ground where it goes through an awesome process of change. I mean, those of you who are farmers or smallholders here and you grow stuff on your property know exactly what I'm talking about. That seed, if you had to dig it up every now and again, you'd find it's disintegrating. It loses its identity. It dies. It has to. You'd find a completely new life there if you dug it up after a little while, a little shoot with roots going down. And when it sticks its head up out of the soil, up comes a totally new life. Now, it can remain one seed by itself forever, never producing fruit. And Jesus could have done that if he'd wanted to. Remember, he was born without sin. I mean, he would have disobeyed Father's will because Father sent him to die and to be raised again, to be our living Savior. But potentially, with no sin in his body, he could still be living today on this planet in an unscarred body. Perish that thought because then we'd be lost forever. But he'd made a choice to fall into the ground and die in order that the salvation of this world, yours and my salvation, could come out of that and the ongoing fruitfulness in our lives just from one solitary life. Now, there's no doubt about it. This applies to us as well. Because Jesus said, as my Father has sent me, even so send I you. <laughs> we are to be that little grain of wheat as well. We can stay as one seed with all its fruit-bearing potential bound up. Or, don't get me wrong on this, I'm not talking about physical death. I'm not talking about suicide and ending it. 
I have to put that proviso here because I, I don't want anyone to misinterpret this. This is a spiritual thing. Die to self and live for him. And as a precursor, <clears throat> let me just tell you what I do at least once a week. And if I'm being very selfish and precocious and uh, cranky, I have to do it more regularly. Of just getting before the Lord, <clears throat> kneeling down, putting my head on the floor, and getting a picture of myself kneeling under God's mighty hand, as Peter brings that out in his epistle. Humble yourself under God's mighty hand. And he will exalt you in due time. Now, that exalting is not about exalting you over others. It's exalting you above your troubles and your sufferings. You read the preceding verses, you'll see that. <clears throat> now, I pray a prayer like this. I'm glad it's being recorded because you'll remember it. <clears throat> Lord, without you I can do nothing. And I've been a selfish, cranky old guy. And I'm very sorry. I ask you to forgive me. And I humble myself before you under your mighty hand. And I'm actually very comfortable in praying that prayer because I get this picture of myself under the protection of his hand. And then I say, Lord, I want to die to self so that I can live for you. I must decrease and you must increase. I must become less and less and you must become greater and greater. The words that John the Baptist said, I incorporate in my prayer. Remember that. You can pray your own words. But I tell you what, it keeps you in a very comfortable, challenging position under God's hand, responsive to him. And he gives you a little prompting with that little inner voice. Go and do this today. You never met this friend of mine. I was having lunch with James and a retired Anglican military chaplain in Jimboomba <clears throat> a little over a week ago. It was a Monday. And um, I dropped James back up at Callum Vale to drive his car home. And I was driving home. And as I was coming down Algester Road, I felt the Lord say to you, go and see your old friend Barry in the nursing home today. We'd put him in the nursing home. James helped, actually, emptying his caravan out in, in um, uh, Dirac and then um, helping him to move into the nursing home, selling his car because he didn't need that any longer and putting that into his estate in his solicitor's hands. And um, I'd pop and see Barry once a month and encourage him, some, more than once a month. And he started developing a wonderful ministry to the staff and the other inmates, residents of, of the nursing home. They were very old and geriatric. And um, I was tired. And I thought, no, I'll go and see Barry in the morning. And that inner voice said, do it now. So I turned off. Um, Elchester Road down to the nursing home. I spent 40 minutes with him, encouraging him. He felt a little guilty because he'd been rather disobedient. He'd been cranky again. And he um, was doubting his salvation. He said, I'm actually frightened now to stand before God. When I came in here 10 months ago, I just wanted to die. And I said to him, Barry, you have a relationship with Jesus. I read the scriptures to him. You have God's gift of eternal life. You're a child of God. Your sins are forgiven. Now, come on, let's pray together. And I served him communion. And then 20 to 5... He said, what's the time? I said, 20 to 5. He said, you can go now. I'm going to eat my meal. So he kicked me out. <clears throat> I got a call at 2.30 the next morning. He'd been rushed into hospital with a brain hemorrhage and he passed away. <laughs> 
what he wanted to do all the time. Way to go. He just went straight into God's presence. Now, I had promised him at his memorial service or funeral service, I would have as big a crowd as ever. James came along and some other friends of mine for the staff of the nursing home as well as the old geriatric inmates. I estimate 30 people gave their hearts to the Lord. Because Barry had said to me, you must give an altar call at my funeral because I want to know people are getting saved. And I said to the people, if you can get a picture right now of a few angels in heaven having a party, rejoicing, because Jesus said the angels rejoice when just one person comes to repentance. Now a whole bunch of people have, and these angels are jumping around rejoicing and burying, walking up saying, hey guys, what's happening? Well, at your memorial service, 30 people have just got saved. <laughs> I fulfilled my mandate. And that's a case of listening to that little inner voice. Other staff members, the management, were also prompted to go and visit Barry that day, but they neglected. They were busy. And they said to me the next morning, terribly sorry, we, we didn't go and see him. I said, I did. And that was the important thing. Because some of them are full-on Christians as well. The lady who is the receptionist, she's a tough lady. She's got some bold tattoos as well. Um, nobody gets past her. She came to help me that day to move Barry's stuff out, to take out his valuables. And she sat down on the bed. She said, I'm going to miss him. I said, tell me, honey, if this was your day of parting from this planet, are you sure you're going to heaven? She said, no, I'm not, but I'd like to be. I said, no, in acknowledgement for Barry, how about you receiving Jesus into her heart? She got saved so easily. She walked into it. It was brilliant. First one into the kingdom as a result of Barry's ministry in that nursing home. <clears throat> it pays to listen to that voice of God. Now, if I hadn't prayed that humbling prayer that morning, I might have missed that opportunity. I, I hope not. But I leave that with you as a, um, a powerful, practical thought. Now, I'm going to tell you a story based on this <clears throat> about a young man by the name of Ed McCulley. He was born in 1927, and Wendy Collins, this is a man, I think his name was Wendell Collins, he was one of the directors of the early Youth for Christ movement in the United States. And um, he um, had known Ed McCulley as a dedicated Christian, a very talented young man. He held athletic track records. He played the trombone beautifully. He was a great public speaker. In fact, he'd won the United States National Speech Contest out of 10,000 contestants. Promising young man. He was at law school in uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, studying to be a lawyer with a great future ahead of him and a shining Christian. <clears throat> and he said to Wendy Collins that day, he said, I'm leaving all of this. I'm quitting law school. I'm going to missionary training college. I'm going to Wheaton College in Illinois. Then I'm heading with a group of young guys I've met to the jungles of Ecuador in South America to minister the gospel to an unreached tribe called the Orcas. They were headhunters and cannibals. And um, Wendy Collins said to him, Ed, you're crazy. Those cannibals <laughs> you're going to try and reach won't appreciate your speaking ability. They won't even know what a trombone is if you try to play it to them. You're wasting your time and wasting your life. And Ed answered him that day with these words. Powerful words. I've never forgotten them because this motivated me into ministry in 1972. 
It's very personal for me. He said, I can do nothing else but God's will. God's will has become my command because in my own personal life, I've crossed the point of no return. I must go and do what God has told me to do. And Ed did what God told him to do. Sorry, misspelling God with a small g there, my mistake. He quit law school. He went to missionary training college. When he completed his studies, he and a group of four other young guys and their wives, and some of them had children, went to Ecuador in 1952. I was eight years of age then. I didn't know anything about that. They were called the Ecuador Five. Roger Udarian, Pete Fleming, Jim Elliott, who was a great athlete as well, Nate Saint was the pilot of a light aircraft, and Ed McCulley. Well, they had <clears throat> a remarkable ministry to the Orcas, the first white people to go. Not even the Ecuador military ever went into this region because these people were unpredictable. They would put blow darts out of the trees and the forests and poison and kill anyone coming in. In the autumn of 1955, Ed McCulley, along with Jim Ariat, a missionary pilot, Nate Saint, and the other two, began Operation Orca. Their plan was to reach this previously uncontacted Orca Waidoni tribe, since the uh, Waidoni had a reputation as being one of the most murderous tribes on earth. Everything was done first from a distance to win their trust. They began making airdrops with a bucket attached to a long rope, and the plane would circle around, a little six-seater piper, would circle around, and these, the bucket would stay steady on the ground while these cannibals would take the gifts out of the airplane. And um, they noticed at the Carare River there was an embankment on the other side where they could possibly land the plane. So they landed the plane on this riverbank, and this was in January 1956. I was 12 at the time. And the missionaries felt they'd built up enough rapport with the Wadoni, and they decided to land in their territory. Now, Nate Saint, the pilot, was able to land his plane on that sandbar along the Karari River. However, people were praying for this group all over the United States. They were basically Baptists, but what a commitment to Christ. And after friendly ground contact with three orcas, the missionaries were attacked by a party of six orca warriors and three women. And McCulley was the fourth of the five missionaries to be speared and killed by a young orca named Minkei. Remember that name? The world press, just after, in the years of recuperation after World War II, were astounded when this news hit. It went all around the world. January 1956, five missionaries died in an attempt to share the gospel with the Wadani tribe in Ecuador. <sighs> wow. My initial thought when I was reading the story by Wendy Collins was what a waste. But I didn't think that when I came to the end of the story. When Wendy Collins heard the news, he felt a deep personal sorrow that his friend Ed McCulley and the others, others were gone. But he couldn't get out of his head the words of Ed McCulley, it doesn't matter. I've crossed the point of no return. Now, Jim Elliott, the man who died alongside those missionaries that day, had a famous saying, remember this, he is no fool. 
who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. What can we not keep? We cannot keep our own lives. We can do all we can to try and preserve it, but one day God calls up the number. And when you give your life into Christ's service, you gain what you can't lose. <laughs> Wendell Collins goes on in the story. He said, a new jet interceptor was introduced in 1956. And a young Christian pilot let him sit in the cockpit of this jet interceptor. And he noticed, as he was asking questions about the dials and the gauges, that there was a fuel gauge in the bottom right-hand corner. Now, this one doesn't have it. But down the center of that fuel gauge was a red plastic marker. And he said, with a set screw, where you could move it backwards and forwards on the fuel gauge. And he said to the pilot, what's the red marker? He said, we call that the point of no return. And he explained. He said, when we fly out on a mission, we know the distance we've got to cover. We know the weight of the plane with the missiles and the bombs and how light it'll be coming back if we accomplish the mission. We know the winds as much as possible, headwinds, tailwinds. And we measure with a little margin for error where to put that red marker on the halfway mark. He said, all the time we're watching that fuel level dropping. And when it touches the red marker, we've got a little margin of error. We've got to make a decision. Do we turn back with our self-preservation in mind or do we go on and accomplish the mission? And then just he made a passing statement. He said, we studied this at avi avi aviation school. The best pilots in World War II were those ones who crossed that point of no return. And Wendy said to him, the best, they must have been crazy. He said, no, they were the best. Because an amazing thing happened when those men crossed that point of no return. They knew they wouldn't make it back. And they were as good as dead. Even if they crash-landed and were captured, they were open to torture from the adverse nations they were going to, to deal with. He said, they took risks to accomplish their mission, they would never have taken if they didn't have their own self-preservation in mind. He said, they were more daring in their attacks on the enemy targets. They knew they wouldn't make it back. They were dead to themselves, but still alive to the mission that lay ahead. Are you getting the message? <laughs> I can remember... One time, ministering in Zimbabwe. I'd lived there for five years as an, as an accountant before 1972 when God called me into ministry. He moved me to Johannesburg, and I made 14 visits back there. That's after the change to a devastating Mugabe government. It was a terrible mess. Prior to that, the tribal groups were united. They were in harmony. There was no apartheid. I'd grown up in apartheid in South Africa, but there was no apartheid in Zimbabwe. There were even African gentlemen on the parliament, and I'd never seen that before. It was wonderful to live there. I wanted to live there for the rest of my life, but God moved me to Johannesburg to start this ministry. Fourteen visits back, I was asked to go out many times to minister to the military and the Air Force, and they were made up of all the ethnic groups, and sometimes in very dangerous parts of the country with a convoy that could, could have come out under attack. 
because guys were sitting in the hills with grenade launchers and SAM surface-to-air missiles, taking planes out of the sky, shooting up convoys. And I can remember one morning not being sure about making a decision whether I went out to this oil refinery, which was a really soft target, to minister to a garrison of soldiers there. It was the major's birthday, and he allowed the soldiers to call in a preacher. And I knelt before the Lord at about 5 a.m. saying, Lord, I'm married. I have two little kids. I don't have much life insurance. I'm happy to go to heaven, but I don't want to leave my family behind. What do I do? And I went through my little prayer ritual about this again. And then I read the scriptures where Paul and Barnabas were sent out from Antioch. And it says they didn't count their lives worthy in the face of the gospel that they had to spend. And I made my decision. I crossed another point of no return. I went out. All right, lots of dangers, but I survived. I led that entire garrison of soldiers to Christ. <laughs> and I'm glad I went. All right, I survived the day. But Wendell Collins suddenly knew that Ed McCulley had told his own personal experience when he said years before, doesn't matter what happens to me, I've crossed that point of no return. I'm dead to myself and alive to the mission that lies ahead. Now, here's where I punch it home. That's what our brother, the Apostle Paul, meant when he said these words in Galatians 2.20, I am dead, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I. But Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. A dying to self and a living for Christ. That verse came alive to me back then more than ever before. Now, let me localize this right before your eyes now as to something that God might ask us to do every day or maybe at least every week. Why are we worried about what others will think of us when we share Christ with them. <laughs> when we tell them that we've received Jesus and are followers of him. Because I'm sitting on an airplane and um, I get a prophetic word, a word of knowledge for this arrogant man sitting next to me. And he said, how did you know that? Who, are you? Who do you think you are? And I said, very simply, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And I can see him rolling his eyes back in disgust. And I say, stop that. Because I have something very valuable from God to share with you this morning. And at the end of 20 minutes, that man with tears running down his cheeks gave his life to Christ. Now, I could have said to him, listen, I'm a Pentecostal pastor. It would have meant nothing to him. I said, I'm a simple follower of Jesus Christ. And I knew, I've learned to recognize that rolling back of the eyes, that absolute disgust. And I think, mate, that's your last chance. I'm going to get you for Christ now. <laughs> now... Why are we fearful about sharing Christ with people? Because we worry about what they think about us, what they'll say about us. Now, this is not about us. It's about God wanting people to hear the gospel and get saved. It's about Jesus' great sacrifice, about that person's need to be saved. And I've got to reconcile myself to that almost every time I accost an arrogant businessman with the gospel. And I've got to push myself through that barrier of fear. Now, what am I frightened about? What's the worst this guy can do to me? In his condition, I could run faster than him if he takes a swing at me. <laughs> I'm still pretty nifty on my feet at 75. Look, it's, it's 
Remember, we're dead to self and alive to the mission of leading people to Christ. It doesn't matter what they think and say about us. When they come to Christ, they'll be thanking us. And I want to tell you, all the people they may lead to Jesus also goes on your record in heaven too. <laughs> now, here's where we come to the notes that you've got. Would you get these notes out? How to lead someone to Jesus? <clears throat> now, I know I've given this to you before early last year, <clears throat> but some of you might not have been here at that time. Look at the logic of this. Engage in casual conversation with a person, praying inwardly that the Holy Spirit will steer the conversation to spiritual matters. And don't be shocked if the Lord drops into your thoughts a fact about that man's life. And you think, well, how am I going to use this? Just watch for an opening in the conversation and say politely, listen, I think I have a message from God for you. Can I give it to you? My son operates like this brilliantly. He can lead Jewish people of the Lord beautifully by a ministry like this. Watch for opportunities to be speaking about Christ. Use your own personal testimony. May I share my personal experience with Jesus? Well, if you've got a captive audience on an airplane, you can raise your voice a little bit. Maybe six guys around you can hear. <clears throat> and, um, you know, may I share something personal with you that's enriched my life tremendously? You're going to have their attention. Then ask the person, what about you? Have you received Jesus into your life? Have you made him your Lord? When I'm ministering to Jewish people, I don't belittle them. <clears throat> I say to them, you know, when I was 18, I believed you're in your Messiah. What have you done about it? You believed in my Messiah, but you're a Gentile. I said, well, he came to die for the Gentiles and the Jews and all the peoples of the world, that if we believe in him, we'll have eternal life. What have you done about it? And that gets the guy thinking. By the end of the conversation, he said, I'm a Jew and I better have Jesus as my Messiah. Well, why must they receive Jesus? Because the Bible says they're sinners. I used to come right out and say, because you're a sinner. And a lawyer I was ministering to said, I could take you to court for defamation of character for saying that. <laughs> so I say to them, the Bible says that we're all sinners. We've all sinned against God and that includes you too. And their sinners separated them from God. I use an illustration. Here's a solid wall of sin that we're adding to day by day. God's on the other side. We're here separated by this wall of sin. Jesus came and shed his blood to remove that wall of sin as the mediator to take our hand on one side, Father's hand on the other side, and bring us into an eternal relationship with him. Just a simple illustration like that. But if their sin has not taken away, A, their lives are going to be fruitless. They may be successful, but they'll never be fruitful. And dying in that condition, they'll be separated from God in hell for eternity. You see, I've bracketed in verses of Scripture. I have a little Gideon New Testament that comes with me everywhere. And in all the preceding New Testaments, I've shaded in these verses in red so I can open anywhere in the New Testament and pick out a red-shaded verse to show the guy. Now, only the blood of Christ, shed when he died on the cross, can cleanse and remove their sin, obtaining eternal redemption for them. Then, I say now, with this knowledge you've got, are you ready to receive Christ? And I can see a flicker of truth, and then the shutters go up. And I said, now, hang on. Why are you so doubtful? Well, when I think about it, well, look, we're on an airplane here. This plane could go down. You don't want to wait till that happens. Let's make your peace with God now. I normally use another illustration. If you couldn't swim and you'd fallen into a lake and you were drowning, and I was standing on the bank with a lifeline, 
I don't tell him I can swim too. But I would have had a lifeline standing on the bank. Would you need to think and debate about me throwing that lifeline to you? No, you'd be screaming, throw it to me, get me out. I said, you're in a worse predicament, drowning in your sins. And I'm offering you the lifeline of the blood of Jesus Christ. Will you receive it? And the guy, most of the people say, when you put it that way, I would do, I'd like to do it right now. And then a simple prayer <clears throat> to pray with them. I ask them to pray it aloud. Actually, sometimes in an audience like at the old age home <clears throat> on, um, on last Thursday, James will bear me out on that. I said, you can pray this quietly or you can pray it. Everyone, all these elderly people that start praying aloud with me unashamedly. Dear God, I come to you as a sinner, knowing that I need your forgiveness and that I can't save myself. I thank you for loving me so much you sent your son Jesus to die for me. Lord Jesus Christ, I believe that you rose again from the dead and are alive to save me now. I receive you as my savior and make you Lord of my life. I am sorry for my sin and also that I've neglected you in the past, but that stops now. Please forgive all my sin and give me your gift of life. Thank you for hearing my prayer. From now on, I'll do my best to follow and serve you. Then I reach over and congratulate him for his courage and his honesty. Now, don't stop there. Because the enemy can't stop that person being saved. But he'll throw doubts in to trip them up so they're not effective in their witness. Now, <clears throat> give them the assurance from God's word that Jesus has come into their life, that he's cleansed their sin, he's given them God's gift of eternal life because his word says so. Now, I have one, two, three, four Gospel of John scriptures and one in the first epistle of John that I normally show that person. I get them to read it for themselves. Come on, read it for yourself. If we're alone, not on an airplane, I say read it out loud. And you can see the realization. This is it. This is what God says. I've got it. Then you might never see them again. And it doesn't matter. I like to use an illustration of they're in the starting blocks, beginning a race. Now get out of the starting blocks. It would be ridiculous when the starter fired his gun. You stayed in the starting blocks and everyone else ran the race. Nobody ever does that at a sporting event. By reading their Bible each day. I said, start at the Gospel of John. Talk with God in prayer each day. Open conversation with him. Fellowship with other true believers in Jesus. Attend church regularly. Rely daily on the Holy Spirit for strength to serve Christ and tell others. I normally send them out to find somebody who will be the least offended if they're going home. Find a family member who will be the least offended and tell them that you've just received Jesus. When I heard that for the first time at 18 years of age, I went home, my dad <clears throat> was reading the newspaper, it was a Sunday evening service, and I said, Dad, can I tell you something? As I walked in the door, he put down the newspaper, he said, yes, Dave, what do you want? I said, I just want to tell you, I went to this church meeting tonight, I invited Jesus into my life and I got saved. And he looked at me and he blinked, he said, well, that's great. He said, but don't take it too seriously, a little bit of religion is fine. And he went back to his newspaper and I thought, well, that went down well. <laughs> Two years later, my dad got saved, and he remembered that statement when I bounced into the living room, beaming. <laughs> I'm finished now, and I'm going to ask you just to close your eyes. I'm going to lead you in a prayer, <clears throat> and I want you to pray this prayer with me. If there was somebody here, you came as a guest, or you've come a number of times, but you've never truly invited Jesus into your life. What I'm going to ask you to do is to pray this prayer 
before you leave this auditorium. In fact, why don't we do it right now? You can just pray this quietly as I'm going to lead you. Dear Heavenly Father, I need you, and I need your Son Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I've waited far too long, and I'm sorry for neglecting you. Lord Jesus, please come into my heart. Please forgive my sins. Cleanse me with your blood, and give me your gift of eternal life. Thank you, Lord, for hearing my prayer. I'm so grateful you've made me a child of God. From this day on, I commit myself to serve you and to share my faith with others so they can be going to heaven too. And let me finish off by praying for you. Lord, I pray for everyone here who's heard this message that you'll start a brand new episode in their lives of leading people to Christ, that the kingdom of God will grow and that this place will have an accommodation problem with everyone wanting to come and get what they've got by coming to this fellowship. Keep us faithful and true to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Folks, thank you for listening this morning. I'm grateful nobody fell asleep, not even James. And take that little news bulletin home and pray for me. And also, don't be scared to use this little note on how to lead someone to Christ until you're familiar with it. Put it in the front of your Bible and, you know, you can read it off the page to somebody. They don't know what you're reading. It'll give you an edge of confidence until you have this in your heart. God bless you and thank you for listening. Thank you for joining Life City Church and we hope that you were blessed and inspired by today's message. If this ministry has made an impact on your life, we'd love to hear from you. Please drop us a line and share your story at thanks at livecitychurch.com or email us your prayer needs at prayer at livecitychurch.com. We'd love to connect with you and hear more about your story. If you love the ministry of Live City Church, you can make a financial gift to help us spread the good news of Jesus by going to livecitychurch.com and clicking the giving tab. We hope today's message has spoken into your life and look forward to your next visit.